Our passage today comes from Luke chapter 22 and verse 66, reading down through chapter 23 and verse 25. We are taking under consideration together today the trial of the Lord Jesus Christ, that day when the holy and righteous Son of God was arraigned and then spuriously convicted by sinful men. Those who themselves stood under the weight of God's wrath and his judgment conspired to hold a sham trial and to silence the Son of God, the Lamb of God, to put away his influence in the world. Of course, we know that there was far more going on than what their futile minds and darkened hearts could ever have possibly begin, begun to understand. Uh, before we get to that, though, let's turn our hearts to the text of Scripture. It is a little bit of a lengthy text today, so let me encourage you to follow along closely. With God's help, uh, would you give your attention to the reading of his word, Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 66. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent saying, he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he questioned, because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priest and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, 
Nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him not, no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. This is God's word. Would you go with me to the Lord and let's ask his help together today. Heavenly Father, we come to proclaim and to hear your word. Lord, our desire today is that it would go forth not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Lord, we want our faith to rest not in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. And so we pray that you would condescend Lord, as we open your word, make yourself known. Open our eyes, sanctify our lives, renew our thoughts, revive our hearts. And Lord, we pray that you would do this all for your name's sake. Amen. There are a lot of names and titles to keep track of in our text today. So it may help us a little bit before we begin just to get our bearings by looking at the different figures that are involved in the roles that each of them play here. In order for Jesus to be convicted, he had to go through a series of two different trials. There was a Jewish trial and then there was a Roman trial. There was a, a religious trial first and then there was a political trial. Now, why was this, this necessary? Basically, it boils down to Roman occupation at this time. At this time in Jewish history, the Jewish authorities didn't have the authority to put someone to death. They could bring a charge, but they couldn't bring the death penalty against someone. They needed Rome to do that. And so there is this cooperation going on between the church and the state that we don't have in our own nation today. The Jewish trial had basically three different stages to it. Now Luke skips the first stage altogether. That would have been before Annas. He actually, Luke, only mentions the first stage just in passing. And we saw that last week where Jesus is led away into the high priest's house. That's Caiaphas. He is Annas's son-in-law. Annas uh, served as high priest for six years only. And then his son-in-law, Caiaphas, took up 
that post. By this time, also in Jewish history, the office of high priest is not being carried out in a way that is entirely biblical. According to the Old Testament, to be the high priest, uh, you, you had to be raised up from the Levitical line and you served for life. That was not the case now. In practice, by this point in time, this has become a highly politicized appointment. And the Roman king could and often did come in and would depose and appoint high priest essentially at will. And that was the situation that led to Annas's very short term, six years. He had been deposed by the governor and essentially would have been retired for about 15 years before he ever meets Jesus Christ. All five of Annas's sons go on to serve as high priest along with his son-in-law Caiaphas. Well, it's because of this sort of family legacy that Annas has the influence that he does. You can think of him almost as a high priest emeritus. He still has the title, even though he isn't acting in this sort of official capacity. Caiaphas is the one that has to levy the formal charges against Jesus. So Annas conducts sort of an informal review of the situation before Jesus goes to Caiaphas for that first formal investigation. Caiaphas is the one you might remember from John chapter 11, right after Jesus raises Lazarus, that the chief priests and the Pharisees begin to worry. And they, they begin to look at what Jesus has done and at his many mighty miracles that he is performing. And, and he, he worry, or they worry that if things go on like this, everyone is going to believe in, G, in Jesus. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And then Caiaphas says this, you know nothing at all. He's speaking to the chief priests and the Pharisees. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then it follows on with this. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Unbeknownst to Caiaphas, God put a word of prophecy into this unbelieving man's mouth, pointing to the Lord's good, gracious purposes of salvation that he was going to bring to pass through the hands of sinful men. And really, brothers and sisters, that is the keynote throughout our, our text today. There are lots of different moving parts. There are lots of different names and different scenes, but more important than all of that is what God is doing. It's what God is doing through the hands of sinful man to accomplish his purposes of redemption. That is what is of eternal consequence to your soul. Each of these scenes show us something vital about the way of salvation. And I wanna call your attention to three big ideas the text highlights for us. The first is this, Jesus will attain glory 
through suffering. Jesus will attain glory through suffering. Looking back at our text, and this is now the third stage of that Jewish trial in, verse, in chapter 22 and verse 66, we find the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. It is now the beginning of the day. It is Friday morning, and Jesus is standing before the, count, the council or the Sanhedrin. You can think of the Sanhedrin almost as a sort of religious supreme court. These are the very ones, uh, Jesus said back in Luke chapter 9 and verse 22, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. These are the men that he had in mind when he spoke those words. And everything looks very ominous right now. And it is. Remember how Jesus said, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. But again, that is not the whole story. Look at verse 67, if you would. Before the Jewish leaders can go to the state, they have to get their heads together they have to make, every, make sure everyone's on the same page. They're all agreed on, the, on a plan. And so they, they work to render a preliminary judgment. And so they tell Jesus, if you are the Christ, tell us. But what does Jesus say? He already knows exactly what is, what's going to play out. He already knows what is in their hearts. He says, if I tell you, you will not believe their purpose in making this inquiry is not so that they can discover and then believe upon the one whom is the promised Messiah. At the same time, he says, if I were to ask you a question, you won't answer. And we've seen this already. We have seen this play out in, in several different occasions already where Jesus presents a question and they are boxed into a corner and they are simply silenced. They, they will not respond. And the point here is that their intentions in conducting this investigation aren't sincere. They aren't sincere in the first place. This is a kangaroo court. They have no desire to give Christ a fair hearing. The political machinery is all, of, all there. All of the key figures that you need to make things happen, they're there, but the verdict is already in place before the hearing ever got started. Remember that the Sanhedrin is comprised of chief priests and scribes. It was supposed to be made up of 70 of the most devout, honorable men, the kind of men who would judge uh, impartially, who would judge righteously. And yet, they have already come to their conclusions here. Proverbs chapter 18 Anyone who is ever involved in listening to a, a situation with, uh, where, where there is a dispute uh, would, would do well to hear these words. Proverbs, Proverbs 18 and verse 13. If anyone gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. But this is exactly what we have here. They have already seen everything they wanted to see. They've already settled things in their minds before they've ever heard. And the desired end is what governs the whole thing. But church, what shall be the end? 
Verse 69, but from now on, the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus will receive glory through suffering. And Jesus is looking even now, even at this moment, this hour of darkness beyond the cross to the crown. He's looking not only to his sufferings and death, he knows those are coming, but he's also looking to vindication and glory. He knows too that that is coming because that is the promise of the Father. He's already spoken it. During the American Revolution, George Washington was constantly the object of attempts to try to unseat him as the commander of the Continental Army. One time when he was in New Jersey in New Brunswick, this was in late November, 1776, Washington was handed a letter from General Charles Lee and it was addressed to another man. It was addressed to Adjutant General Joseph Reed. Now, Reed is in western New Jersey at the time, and he is working ostensibly to gather together some more of the state's militia. And Washington assumes that this is just army business, and so he opens up the letter only to discover that Lee and Reed, who previously he has trusted implicitly, are discussing what they describe as Washington's fatal indecision of mind. They're scheming behind his back. Now, Washington could have exploded over something like this. He could, he could have had their heads, so to speak, but he did something else. He simply forwarded the letter on to read with a note of apology for opening it up. Without saying anything at all, this was effectively all she wrote. It showed that while there were plots and there were plans and there were schemes that were going on behind Washington's back, Washington was quietly in control. And you have something of that going on here in Luke 22. That same sort of idea, Jesus says, very little, but what he does say exudes power, it demonstrates his authority, and it holds forth the promise of victory and exaltation. We have this image of the Son of Man uh, that's drawn from the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. He says, from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. This is that, that title of Christ that speaks to his, his condescension and his humiliation and his identification with the people that he came to save. But it also looks beyond that, even in the Old Testament, even in Daniel chapter seven, to Christ's glorious reign as the son of man. This is Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. In living color, we're on the precipice of it. Uh, it says there, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom 
that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. One like a son of man is served, paid tribute to, ascribed glory by all peoples, tribes, languages. And Jesus says, from now on, he shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. It's like he takes Daniel chapter seven and Psalm 110 verses one and two, and he just weaves them together. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies. Here is the Lord Christ in Luke chapter 22. He is bound before his captors. Picture this in your mind, yet nevertheless declaring, here is what is about to happen. From now on, I shall be enthroned on high. An awesome picture. Just like Joseph, he is saying what you meant for evil, God meant for good to bring it about that many should be saved. I pray that that makes your heart sing as it does mine. To think that today Jesus is high and lifted up. He is seated in this place of glory and supremacy at the right hand of the majesty on high. He reigns. This must have been an astonishing claim for those that are around him to hear at this moment. This idea that he is about to take up this heavenly session at the right hand of the Father, knowing that their plans are to destroy him. Their plans are to put him away. This claim spoken from the mouth of Jesus Christ would have been tantamount in their minds to blasphemy. The idea that he would say he could have this place at at God's right hand, uh, access, unmediated access to the uh, holy presence of the Father in this place of glory, it would have boggled the mind to them to consider this this claim. If you look at verse 70, you can see that the council understands exactly the nature of the claim. They say, so uh, you are the son of God then. Are we really hearing what we think we're hearing? And Jesus says, you say that I am. Now, Friends, Jesus is not just trying to be dodgy here. This is a common way of speaking in these kinds of dialogues. It is designed to call the interrogator to give an account for what they have said, for whatever accusations they have raised. Jesus is effectively saying here, this is the conclusion you have come to. There may be a little bit of irony here as well, as if to say, well, this is what you say, though you don't really believe it, that I am the son of God. Either way, they could hardly ask for more. They say, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his lips 
And so straightway they go to Pilate at the beginning of chapter 23. Pontius Pilate is the regional magistrate responsible for Roman administration in Judea. If Jesus is going to go to the cross, again, he is going to have to face the one who is charged with maintaining law and order in the land. They need a Roman trial. And so the Jewish council goes to Pilate and they say, Pilate, here is the situation that, they're facing, that we're facing. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. These are the formal charges brought against Christ. I wanna look at each of them with you for just a moment. The first is that Jesus is misleading the nation that he is a political agitator. This was something that uh, Jesus's opponents were constantly trying to dredge up against him. It was frequently levied against him. Uh, it said, they, they said things of this nature against Christ and then against his disciples. They're turning the world upside down. His disciples say, there's another king. He stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. So you take something that has a semblance of truth, people are following him. Large crowds are, are flocking to him. People are swearing allegiance to him. And then you stretch it and you distort it and you manipulate it until it bears no resemblance to the truth. Of course, that's beside the point, isn't it? If it serves your stated purpose, that's all that matters. Now, the, the second charge that's brought against him is that he forbids giving uh, tribute to Caesar. Is that true? No, not at all. We've walked through this gospel. Jesus has said exactly the opposite. He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's. So this is a bald-faced lie. This is patently false. These are trumped up charges. Now, the third, however, is true. And it's the most important. This man goes around saying that he himself is Christ, a king. You notice the way that these are calculated and arranged so that they crescendo in this way that would be sure to get Pilate's attention. He subverts the nation. That, that could mean any number of different things. He forbids giving tribute to Caesar. Well, now, now you're starting to get somebody's attention here. Oh, and by the way, he says he's a king. Each of these charges are political in nature, the religious concerns that are raised before the council, that he is the son of God, those are not brought forward in this context because Pilate doesn't care about that. Pilate doesn't care that Jesus claims to be the son of God. But what Pilate does care about is maintaining his own seat of authority, his power. And so the council plays to what they know will get him riled up 
what they know will work in their favor. They say that he himself is Christ, a king. You see, when it's just the religious authorities, there's no need to provide that explanatory clause that he is a king. Christ means anointed one. And Jews understood that, that kingship was part and parcel with that idea of being the Christ, the promised Messiah, that he would uh, come from the, 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 the line of David and, and sit on David's throne. But now they're before Pilate. And so they feed him this little tidbit that he claims to be a king. Now we know as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ that Christ's kingdom is not of this world. And so his kingship is not of this world in the same way that Pilate's or Herod's authority was. But again, in this context, that doesn't matter. The Jews are looking to marshal whatever they can to use against him. And if that means twisting his words or using them out of context, then, then so be it. Well, it had to have been a disappointment then when Pilate essentially shrugs his shoulders at everything that he hears. He turns to Jesus and asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers him, you have said so. Again, he is, he's not playing coy. It's an affirmative. In fact, the, the apostle uh, Paul calls this uh, Christ's good confession where he urges Timothy to, to fight the good fight of faith, uh, to stand strong in the faith. He says, this is 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, Paul still doesn't really flesh out for us what that good confession was. John gives us a fuller version of that. This is John chapter 18 and verse 37. Jesus says, you say that I am a king. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So Jesus affirms he is the king. He says that everyone who is of the truth listens to him, the king. Well, Pilate is not threatened. He says, I find no guilt in this man. And this is the first indication of the second major theme that we find in this text, the innocence of Christ, that it is the righteous who goes to die, the righteous one. It is testified repeatedly to in Christ, these series of trials, not by Jesus's disciples, not by angels, not by the, the, the voice of the Father from heaven, but by his enemies, by his adversaries, that here stands an innocent man, 
the object of derision and scorn, already mocked and beaten, blindfolded and stricken. Yet Pilate, who has no spiritual interest in him, he is forced to confess, I find no guilt in this man. And it won't be the last time that those words are uttered by this man. He continues to, to let this chorus resound. I find no guilt in this man. And yet, meanwhile, crowds are beginning to gather all around. They're seeing something is going on here and they're becoming increasingly bloodthirsty. It says, but they were urgent, saying he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, even to this place. In all likelihood, this was probably welcome news for Pilate to hear that word Galilee uh, come forth. If Jesus is a Galilean, uh, Pilate has an out. Uh, Jesus belongs to Herod's jurisdiction, not Pilate's. That gives Pilate an opportunity then to sort of kind of get the monkey off his back and uh, leave whatever consequences of whatever it is that might go down to, to someone else, not be held responsible for the matter. Well, to make matters uh, even better for Pilate, Herod happens to be in town because it's the feast of the Passover. If you look at verse eight, Jesus is brought to Herod. And I want you to notice the nature of Herod's interest. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. You see that initially, Herod is very excited. This is something that he'd been wanting to see for a very long time. But he looks at the Lord Jesus the way many people look at the Lord Jesus still to this day, as someone to be entertained by, as someone to gawk at, not someone to trust in or to submit their lives to, to follow after in obedience to. Herod is just seeking a sign. He questions him at, at length, and yet Jesus makes no reply. A not guilty verdict has already been rendered, and so there is, there's nothing more, really, that needs to be said. The early church looked at that. They looked at Jesus' silence here in, in this episode, and they saw this as a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53, uh, that most well-known of the servant songs. In Acts chapter eight, uh, Philip comes across uh, that Ethiopian eunuch uh, who he finds reading the prophet Isaiah. And Philip runs over and he, he hears him read and he, and he asks a wonderful question. He says, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian eunuch, you have to appreciate his question and his transparency and humility. He says, how can I unless someone guides me? And so they sit down together. And then it says this, Acts 8.32. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. And this is quoting from Isaiah chapter 53. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shear is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, 
justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Jesus was that innocent lamb who opened not his mouth. Jesus was the holy, righteous one who was led away to die. While those around him are swift to shed innocent blood, the Lord Jesus takes it all and he does so with consummate meekness and humility and patience, submitting himself in obedience to the Father's will. When Jesus does not perform for Herod, Herod immediately begins to mock him. It says that they put splendid clothing on him, perhaps a purple robe. And you see what it says in verse 12. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that day, that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Friends align or enemies align as friends against the Son of God. That much they have in common. So Jesus is now back in the hands of Pilate, and Pilate calls together the religious authorities and says, again, we have done our examination, and for a second time, he makes this assertion, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. The same was true for Herod. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. They both come to the same conclusion. Jesus is innocent. Now what? Well, neither the Jewish leadership nor the people are going to be satisfied until Jesus is convicted. And so Pilate makes this one last ditch attempt to try to appease the Jews. He has already said that Jesus is innocent He has already tried to pass the buck to to Herod. Now he says, I'll punish him and release him. Now the, the punishment here refers to a particular kind of flogging that was used to teach someone a lesson. Although you have to wonder why Jesus deserved a punishment of this nature if he was innocent in the first place. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. And it's taken for, for granted in Luke's gospel that his readers will be familiar with the custom of, of the time to release one prisoner each year at the feast of the Passover, anyone that the crowd desired. You can find that in Matthew and Mark's account. Pilate still wants to release Jesus. But they keep shouting, crucify, crucify him. Remarkably, Pilate says for a third time, I have found in him no guilt deserving of death. Verse 4, verse 14, verse 15, verse 22, they all make the same point 
innocent, not guilty, nothing deserving of death. You see, Luke almost belabors the point in his narrative so that it would be impressed upon our hearts who here is being led to the cross, an innocent man. Again, if, the, if this passage was, was a song, this would be the chorus that you would have stuck in your head as you walked away. Innocent, innocent, nothing deserving of death. Jesus Christ is a lamb without blemish or spot. This is something that the, the New Testament uh, writers go on to revel and rejoice and glory in time and time again. First Peter 2, verse 22, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Hebrews chapter four and verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. First John 3, 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. But... Our text says they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified and their voices prevailed. Pilate acquiesces. For, for a while, whatever it is that was within him held out, his conscience had, had, had held out, but in the end, the desires of the flesh win the day. And it, and it proves at the end, Pilate has no real concern that justice be done. He, he says three times over, this man has done nothing wrong, but that objection has nothing to do with taking a real stand for righteousness. Because when he is pressed, when he is pressed long enough and hard enough, eventually he caves. Whatever qualms he has just evaporate. And, 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 and he is ruled by the fear of man in the end. And so we come to our third and final observation. It, it, it's a sobering one, but it's a glorious one indeed. The innocent is condemned to die that the guilty may go free. Here you have in Barabbas, a man who is in prison for the very thing that Jesus has been accused of, insurrection. And yet what happens? Barabbas is set free but only because Jesus stood in his place. Only because Christ came and stood in his place. Verse 25 is a powerful illustration of the very heart of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. One who was condemned to die was liberated from bondage and captivity because the righteous one was delivered up in his place. And so the Lamb of God prepares to be crucified while the guilty, the criminal, the sinner walks free. It is the great exchange. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Dear ones, 
Inasmuch as we have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, we are Barabbas. He has come to stand in our place. We are those who deserve judgment and hell, wrath, death. But we have a spotless substitute who died in our place that the sinful may go free. Today, Jesus reigns in glory. He is seated right now at the right hand of the throne of God. And that is why we are here today to proclaim what Christians around the world proclaim every Lord's Day, that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father and will come again to judge the living and the dead. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we bow our hearts before your holy and awesome name today, giving you glory and honor and praise. God, we thank you that the purposes of redemption have been accomplished in your son, that it is finished. God, we give you glory. Thank you, Lord, that in the counsel of your will, you determined to save a people for yourself, a people who had sinned against you in word and thought and deed, a people who were suffering under the wages of sin and deservedly so, yet Christ came. He stood in our place. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. Lord, everything that we are is owing to the grace and mercy we've come to know in him. Thank you that today he does reign in glory. Lord, thank you that he always lives to make intercession for us. He is all of our hope and strength. Father, I pray that today our hearts would be established in this good news, that in Jesus Christ, we have a perfect savior, a great high priest, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. Lord, we bless your name and we give you glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.